0: I Welcome to episode 1412 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. I'm happy that you are awake and recovered enough to talk to me today. You had a busy Wednesday.
0: (laughs) My brain is pudding. (laughs) My brain feels like pudding. Uh, Yeah, it ended up, you know, we should have known. We just should have known that after a month of sitting around saying, hey, it seems like we're not going to have a lot of deadline activity that every mm-hmm. team in baseball was like one of it.
1: Yeah. Well, some people apparently think that there wasn't enough activity Ugh. and we're going to talk about that a little later in the episode. But if there had been any more, I don't know how you and Dylan and Rachel would have made it through the day because I don't know how you put up as much content as you did in a very short time. That was that was that must have been a record day for fan graphs, <laughs> yeah. just in terms of. Yeah, it
0: was, I I think that it was, I think Appleman has confirmed that that was a record number of posts. Uh Uh, Yeah, we uh, could not have done it without Dylan and Rachel's editing assistance, which was invaluable. And of course, our staff did a very, very good job of responding to a lot of trades very quickly. So thank you to all of them. And for everyone trying to wade through all the many, many trades that we had on the site. We appreciate you reading. (laughs) Every you know, early in the day at FanGraphs, like many um, media companies, we have a Slack that we use to like assign uh, articles and stuff. And we had some stuff ready to ready to roll for the day, and we were sitting back, ready for things to be, you know, kind of quiet. And then, and then things changed, But at eight forty in the morning, my time, Craig Edwards sent a message to the Slack that said, "More like trade deadline." <laughs> uh-huh. So it's all Craig's and fault, he, really.
1: Yeah, <laughs> he opened the floodgates. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dylan messaged me in the middle of the day and was like, "How are you dealing with this madness?" And I was like, "This is madness. Like nothing, nothing has happened." But of course, I hadn't written anything to that point, and. <laughs> Of course we work for different sites With different mission statements I work for a non-baseball exclusive site And so for us to do a post on something It has to rise to a a certain level of newsworthiness So I think we had a Stroman post And we had a Bauer post And we had a Granky post ultimately And then Bauman did winners and losers And Cram did something on teams that didn't do anything But we weren't doing like a Nick Castellanos post Or a, a Rocky Gale post <laughs> Which you did have on the site So if you just made a decision like We're we're just going to do every trade And there yep. will be some sort of audience Out there, there's someone out there Who yep. roots for that team And will probably want to know what this meant For his or her team, so why not Yeah,
0: yeah I will admit that I, I wanted a Rocky Gale post Just because Rocky Gale is You know, if you had asked me As the managing editor of Fangrass yesterday Who Rocky Gale was yeah. I would have said Sounds like a character on like the Muppets.
1: Yeah, I definitely did not know anything about Rocky Gale.
0: Didn't know about Rocky the fact Gale. That
1: he existed and was yeah. a baseball player. <laughs> yeah,
0: sorry Rocky, we didn't know about you. But then I saw it come across the transom, click, click, click. And I was like, well, that's a name that needs to appear on Fangraphs.com. And That yeah. needs a headline. So, uh, mm-hmm. so there it was. Yeah, it was a very busy day. But it's, you know, it's an exciting it's it's one of those days where you go to bed, and you feel like you have accomplished a thing and you have worked hard. And so it is satisfying even as you are very tired. And so yeah, I, lo- I like deadline day. I've decided Mm -hmm. I like it
1: (laughs) Yeah it can be stressful at times When I used to do transaction analysis At Baseball Prospectus, I didn't love it because I felt like Anything could happen at any moment And I prefer to know When I'm running something And kind of structure my life around that Rather than uh oh a trade happened I have to drop everything and do that And at BP occasionally we would have Like an all hands on deck sort of situation Like on a deadline day or winter meetings Where people would be kind of on call to pitch in but for the most part it was one or two people who were sort of breaking down every move but I assume that at trade deadline time you you kind of put the call out because because a lot of these sites like baseball prospectus and fangrass have always had fairly limited full-time staff yeah. so we have lots of contributors but we don't necessarily have a lot of people who are just doing this all day and can just drop everything and respond to things immediately so I guess people were just pitching in as they could
0: yeah we were fortunate in that you know the the full-time staff is a bit more sizable than i think it's been in years past so mm-hmm. you know we had we had folks ready on the full time side and then we had a number of contributors who and i mean this as a compliment to all of them were just i i think willing to neglect their other professional responsibilities <laughs> to write transaction <laughs> analysis for us so <laughs> so yeah we were we were lucky that folks were around to pitch in because as things started to hit i i I did have a moment where I was like, oh, well, I guess we're not going to cover some of these here trades, but mm-hmm. we, we got through we got through the queue. I did yeah. make Craig go and sort of reconcile our slack and what had been claimed to Roto World just to make sure I hadn't missed anything. <laughs> and that did not prevent me from having a dream. And I don't know the player that was involved in the dream because dreams are not always good and logical like that, but I had a dream that there had been a major transaction and we just missed it. <laughs> and so I woke up at four in the morning and then Realized that it was not real and was able to <laughs> roll over and go back to sleep. So,
1: the managing editor nightmares. <laughs> it's
0: such a strange set of things that I both have to worry and care about.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's the one recurring nightmare that I have is like a school dream of just like I have a test or a paper due or it's finals week or something and somehow I neglected everything until that point and now I just realized it's all due tomorrow. I never have the like I'm not wearing pants in a crowded room dream or I guess maybe occasionally I've had the something is chasing me dream but not that often. Usually it's the I have something due and I didn't do it dream which is not. Not fair cuz like i hit my deadlines I, yeah. I i take pride in that i know it's important and so yeah. i don't really find myself in that situation very often where i realize that something is due and i just completely blanked on it but in my dreams it happens all the time and it's almost worth it to me for the feeling that you get when you realize that it was just a dream which is one of the best possible feelings i think cuz there are times when i just realize I'm not even taking that class. I don't take classes anymore. I will never have to take a class if I don't want to ever again. And I don't have tests and and I still have things due and deadlines and adulthood comes with its own terrors and responsibilities. But that particular terror, I don't have to deal with anymore. And I like that.
0: Well, and I think that it's the dream that I have. I have two. They are different versions of the same dream. So I occasionally have a dream that I have to go back to Goldman and work at Goldman and like and do a job there that I did not do. Like, I tr- have to trade like energy futures, and I'm like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I never did that, and now I have to do it. And it seems hard, so I'm that's a bummer. So, there's so there's that dream, and then the, the other version of that, my version of the I've been in a class all semester and didn't realize, and now I have to take the final is that I was supposed to have been editing. Uh, rotographs, which is ably edited by Paul Spore already, but that I was supposed to be editing that this whole time and no one told me <laughs> So that's the current version I have of that Although I did have the Goldman dream last night, too But in the Goldman dream this time around some colleagues from Fangraphs appeared on the trading floor and were like No, you don't have to be here. You just come with us. Like, oh, let's strange. get out of here So I I don't know if I should like share that with my therapist is like a breakthrough in anxiety yeah. or something I was like, yeah, I don't have to be here that oil can just sit it untraded, won't it, please?
1: Oh, that's so. heartwarming. Yeah, it's, it was nice. Wow, your nightmares are turning into happy dreams.
0: Yeah, we're working on it anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, so I think it was probably Best for you and Dylan and Rachel That there were not more moves made on Deadline day because they literally Would not have fit on the homepage I'm not sure They did as it was no but (laughs) But there has Been sort of a backlash to the Deadline in the day since And I wanted to talk about that Because Sam and I were joking on our Trade deadline roundup episode about how When it did look like nothing was going to Happen I was going to try to come up With some take where I would tie this to the off-season lack of activity and the issues with the economic market as a whole, and this is the latest manifestation of that, and baseball is broken, blah, blah, blah. And then we kind of left that off, and I didn't end up writing that article because lots of stuff ended up happening. But that article has been written, and that take is definitely out there. So even though there was a lot of late activity It was evidently not enough to appease some people and some smart people. So I wanted to talk about that and whether that is a a reaction that we should be having, whether that's a fair response to this particular trade deadline. And I should just say, I I think I mentioned on the most recent episode that this was the most players traded in July Mm -hmm. on record And Ben Clemens followed up and he did some analysis at Fangraphs on Thursday about how it was a really busy deadline day. The most players traded on a deadline day and not the most war, but like a pretty typical amount of war and not a low amount of war. So granted, maybe you would have expected this deadline to be a bit busier because of the unified trade deadline. But once the dust settled... There wasn't really any clear evidence in terms of the number of trades, the number of players exchanged, the number of war traded, that this was out of the ordinary or particularly slow. Like It took its time getting there, and maybe that means something, as Sam and I were discussing, but ultimately... There was a lot of stuff that did get done, and so I kind of went to bed thinking, well, crisis averted, and we don't have to do the think pieces, and what does this mean for the state of the game and the hand-wringing, because uh, everything kind of worked out, and we had all this stuff break after the deadline that we found out about, and Cranky got traded, and so on and so on. But. We have an article from the excellent Ken Rosenthal who wrote or his headline says the trade deadline is the latest example of the life getting sucked out of the sport. And he said that it's risk averse GMs and they care too much about prospects and they're not making the impact move and that this is the latest manifestation Of a fan unfriendly movement in the game as a whole that we've been talking about in other areas and I think he made some good points in here but I'm not sure I agree with the thesis or or whether this deadline actually was emblematic of that but I wanted to kind of talk it through so what were your thoughts about that column.
0: So I think that there are, like you, there are parts of this that I agreed with. So, and, and I want to add the caveat to this that like, I, I think that we sometimes in our public analysis, certainly in the way that fans react to activity or inactivity at the deadline, that there is less of an appreciation than there perhaps should be for the fact that, you know, it takes two to tango, right? Like mm-hmm. you can be in search of talent and be willing to pay a significant Price for that talent. But if you don't find a willing trade partner, it's hard to do that. So I think that, you know, sometimes teams will talk about like the trades untraded, the trades undone. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a means of making excuses for their inactivity. But some of it is very genuine that they would like to be more active than they end up being. And, you know, this is just kind of how that stuff works out. So right. with that caveat yeah. in place,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I think that Ken is right to point out that the, like, the Yankees and the Dodgers who are teams that are in positions of strength within their divisions, but are, you know, presumably planning for October baseball, not for their, their current situation, not making uh, more impact moves when there are places of obvious need on their rosters and places of need that will matter significantly in October is a little disheartening. Mm -hmm. And we, of course, don't know what they tried to do and were unable to do and why they weren't able to do that with sort of perfect clarity. But that's sort of disheartening. On the other hand, like the Astros traded for Zach Greinke. And that's pretty great. I do think that the Astros making that move does allow us to sort of skirt a conversation that might otherwise be uncomfortable about how um, invested some contenders were. But I think that that's a a positive sign. I think that the return that the Diamondbacks got in that deal is a positive sign for a different classification of team—one that isn't trying to win this year necessarily, but is signaling with some of the prospects that they acquired that they don't want to be so far away from contention that you know they're they're planning for dudes who aren't going to be able to contribute until 2022, right? Like they're getting guys that are going to be in the majors in fairly short order. So uh, I thought that was encouraging. The mm-hmm. the Mets ended up having kind of an encouraging trade deadline, even if they yeah. maybe traded their way into not being able to trade Noah Syndergaard, like, now the Mets next year are going to have a pretty fun rotation and mm-hmm. be pretty good. So that's exciting. I think that the Giants electing to strategically sell pieces but not throw in the towel on their current season is, is you know, and we have to see how these... All of these deals sort of pan out in the next couple of months. It's always a little strange to do this sort of uh, grading so early after they've been completed. But like they've seemed to try to thread a needle anyhow of not throwing in the towel on this year, but still trying to get better for the long term. So I think that there are definitely some moves unmade that were discouraging, but it ended up with some teams that we were prepared to be pretty critical of ending up in a position that uh, I think sets them up for not only long-term competitiveness, but like long-term, short-term competitiveness, right? Like mm-hmm. these are moves that are being made to be competitive in in the very near term or next season. So my impression of it changed, but I do wonder how different my impression of it would be without that Granky deal.
1: Mm-hmm. So quoting Ken here, he said, The sport suffers from an overriding lack of urgency. The deadline needs to be as juiced as the baseball. Instead, too many teams place inordinate emphasis on the future, blathering on about discipline and process. Why should a GM play for today when he can delay the evaluation of his performance until some distant tomorrow? So I have a lot of thoughts about this. I guess one thought, and Ken mentions this but doesn't really make the connection that I was making as I was reading it, which is that there were these teams, some of which you just mentioned, like the Mets and the Giants and the Reds maybe. I I mean, Sam and I were talking about these are teams that are kind of out of it, or at least if you took a very dispassionate analytical view and you just looked at the playoff odds, you would say, yeah, they should have sold and they didn't. And that's, I think, one reason why there weren't more moves made or some of the top contenders didn't make major moves because those teams opted not to sell or they put a very high price on those players because they weren't very motivated to sell. And that's sort of the opposite of this argument that that teams are just kind of saying all that matters is the future and we're just going to be very analytical and risk averse. I mean, the Giants, the Mets, uh, these teams... We're saying, yeah, we know that we're probably not going to make the playoffs this year, but we're still not going to sell. And the Giants were not going to deal Bumgarner and we're not going to deal Will Smith because they wanted to at least make a a token effort at contending this year and see themselves maybe as contenders next year. The Pirates are another one. The Dodgers were trying to trade for Felipe Vasquez from the Pirates and the Pirates evidently put a very high price on him. In part because he's just good and he's under team control for a while and very affordable contract and all that, but also because they seemingly reportedly see themselves as possible contenders next year, which I don't know that they actually will be. But if that's part of it, if they were like, well, we're not going to trade Vasquez to the Dodgers because we think we could contend next year then that is competitive for this. Right. That is teams trying to win. It's, it's thwarting maybe the Dodgers' plans. And Andrew Friedman did say that he thought that the Dodgers were aggressive and it just didn't work out. But I think, as you said, it does take two teams. And if a lot of the teams that would have been sellers, if we were going strictly by playing the odds – Decided that they weren't going to sell Then there just weren't as many guys Out there then you know some of the Top targets that we had been talking about All month turned out not really to be available Zach Wheeler was not traded Even though there was interest in him in part at least because the Mets have been playing pretty well and maybe they want to take a run at this thing this year or they want to talk to him about an extension or re-signing him and they look at what they have right now, which is really impressive when you look at DeGrom and Syndergaard and Stroman and Matz and then the young hitters in their core too. And you figure if they keep Wheeler around, I mean, that's one of baseball's best rotations next year. They yeah. should be able to contend so and and the mets of course are a team that invested in their roster over this past winter too so i don't know to me it it just seems like that is an example of teams maybe going against their long-term interests because they're trying to win so there was a lot of that happening too
0: yeah i think that there's i think that it's hard to how do i want to put this like I would have liked for say I think you can make an argument that some of these rosters would have been in a more sort of defined and definite position going into the deadline if they had made more moves in the off season, right? I'm sympathetic to mm-hmm. that argument, right? Like the Giants If, if what the Giants wanted to do was occupy this in-between space where they are both trying to stay in contention while also rebuilding, well, they could have signed some guys in the offseason that would have furthered that goal one way or the other. And they opted not to do that. And so you might want, you might make the point that like they could have had a more active deadline, uh, as buyers if they had decided to be contenders earlier. But I don't think that. Once teams are in sort of mid-season mode and they decide not to be overly reactionary to, you know, playoff odds one way or the other, that you can necessarily fault them for that, I don't think that it's an expression of teams being sort of cynical about their long-term projections. Like you look at the the prospects that the Pirates reportedly wanted from the Dodgers. And I don't know that I would have traded any of those guys either mm-hmm. for, you know, for a reliever. That would seem like a gross overpay and would seem like sacrificing competitiveness down the road, not five years from now, but next season that might be important to them. So I think that we can bemoan sort of the general disinclination that some teams have to really go all in while still saying that that isn't, that this isn't necessarily a symptom of that particular problem. Like that problem Mm -hmm. exists, but I don't know that this is an indication of that. Like even, you know, I have been pretty hard, as have many on Cleveland and their sort of anemic response to, um, to the position they occupy in their division right now. But like, Mm -hmm. even they went out and figured out a way to address some of their needs, right? Like, Puig is a, is a better player than several of the guys. Even though they have played well recently, I got a lot of grief about this in my most recent <laughs> chat. I understand that they've played well recently. They've played a very soft schedule. It's all fine. Mm-hmm. Getting Puig is a good move. So, like they even they went out and did some stuff to address the position that they find themselves in. I think that for this particular deadline, the competitive environment and how competitive the current playoff race is for some teams is more responsible for the amount of activity we saw and sort of the, the quality of that activity than a consolidated deadline or teams being reluctant to win right now. I I don't know. I don't yeah I don't know if I agree with Ken. I don't like yeah, disagreeing I, with Ken. It's uncomfortable. Ken's no, good I at like, this. I like Ken, yeah.
1: I and mean, I get what I, he means, but yeah.
0: I don't know that I am quite sold.
1: Right. And some of the teams that were not so active this week, like the Phillies added Dickerson. They didn't sure. do a, a whole lot, but no team was more active than the Phillies over this previous winter. Right. So I don't think we can completely forget about all the money they spent and the trades they made at that time. Like a lot of what you do is over the winter. And sure, it's nice to supplement that in season if you can too. But it's not like they've been sitting on their hands for the past year. They've been pretty busy or right. – or. The Twins made a lot of off-season moves They only added Dyson really on deadline day But they were pretty busy over the winter Or you've got teams like the Dodgers Okay, they didn't do much of note But they've also assembled a super team here So we've got... These teams that are just playing better than the best teams were several right. years ago, I think. And that is a credit to how they built their teams. However, that is, it's different ways. But I think when you didn't really have 100 win teams, there was a period there where there was just no such thing as a 100 win team. And now you've got the Dodgers and the Astros and the Yankees and these teams that are just unassailable. So they really do have fewer upgrades to make in season than I think some of the contenders used to. That's not to say that they can't get better, but they're just really, really good already. And I don't know that it's fair to... Criticize the Dodgers so much because As Sam noted on our last Episode a they've been very aggressive At previous deadlines They right. traded for Manny Machado they traded for you Darvish They've gone out and gotten the, the Best player available at the, the Past couple of deadlines so they are Willing to do that and b Like they are about To win what their seventh consecutive Division title right they're the favorite In their league to win the pennant And that would be their third straight Pennant like Whatever they're doing is working really well, and they've also had high payrolls over the past decade or so, and yeah, they have the market size and everything, but they've spent, and maybe you could lump the Red Sox into that group who who didn't really do anything on deadline day either, really didn't do anything, but they have done a lot. They won the World Series last year with the highest payroll in baseball, and They've incurred luxury tax penalties and draft pick penalties, and they seem to sort of max out what baseball teams are willing or able to spend these days. So, I don't know. One day of not doing anything doesn't erase all of those other days of of doing lots of things to me. And also, like, what is the optimal amount of? Going for it, like how aggressive should you be? Because when teams are are looking to the future and, and saying they want to win in the future, they're still saying they want to win at that time. And that is friendly to fans who will be rooting for the team at that point. So... I think there's something to be said for trying to build a sustainable team that doesn't just burn bright for a few years and then collapse, but wanting to make sure that you do hold on to some prospects so that you can keep promoting those players. And, and the Dodgers have done that. They've signed players to big extensions. They've signed free agents. They've traded for guys, but they've also held on to the Seegers and the Bellingers and and resisted the temptation to trade those guys and that is a big part of why they have this foundation where not only have they won every year for a long time now, but there's no real end in sight. So, right. I mean, that I think is an admirable thing, too, to show some restraint occasionally and not be like the GM equivalent of the vroom vroom guy who's just <laughs> going for it constantly. Like, you do want to have some moderation and you know, factor in the future because those are seasons that matter too. And, you know, you want to have a good team every year, ideally. So they seem to have done the best job of, of anyone of making this just a replenishable resource. And I think there's something to be said for that approach.
0: Now, all of that said, and I don't disagree <laughs> with you, I will say I loved the Granky deal. I yes, me loved too. the Granky deal. <laughs> I admire greatly the idea that a team that literally has the best record in the American League is set up for a long playoff run, has a good rotation, has top of the line guys. It's just like, what if we got better, though? Yeah. (laughs) What if we got even better, though? What if we... Knowing that, like, window competitive windows don't last forever, even when you draft smartly and have excellent player development and are willing to spend money, they don't last forever. And so, what if? We went out and we got a guy who can not only help us for October but gives us insurance on the back end next season if Garrett Cole decides not to come back. What if we just went and got better and positioned ourselves to be the best team in the American League and a lot of stuff can happen in October and all kinds of crazy shenanigans can go on. But really, what if we just put a very, very, very good baseball team on the field and they went out and did it? And so I understand the impulse to want – teams especially contending teams of various sort of shades of contention right so, you know to to go out and say look what we want is to win a World Series and we're gonna back up moves to do that but I do agree with you that the deadline is not the only time that teams are able to sort of declare that intention they can do that at a variety of times in the calendar they can definitely do it in the offseason and I don't think that anyone can look at the Dodgers and say like well they don't care about going to the World Series like I think that franchise wants a World Series one real bad mm-hmm but I do get when people are like, you know, it's really great is to stick get Zach Granky, right? It's really great yeah. to go get uh, granted. Like they can't do this now. So they just decided to do it now instead of in August, right? It's really great mm-hmm. to go get Verlander and be like, we're going to go win a world series. I don't know what you guys are doing over there, but what we're going to do is go win a world series. Like that is a yeah. very, that is a, a posture that I think is important to baseball. And so I don't want to let contenders off the hook too too much but i do agree with you that we should we should probably take a more comprehensive view to you know sort of how long teams can be making those declarations and sort of the window that they have to do that is not just in july it's also in you know december and so mm-hmm. we want we want teams to say that what matters to them is winning all along the, the way and all throughout the calendar, and so it's nice when they do it in July, but it's also nice when they do it in November or January, as the case has been recently mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah
1: yeah i don't know I mean I really admire and enjoyed the grinky trade too i don't know that there were multiple Greinke's out there to be right. had. Like, Greinke is one of the best pitchers in baseball. Yeah. So <laughs> it's yeah. not like anyone could have just traded for a Granky if sure. they had been aggressive enough to do that. So I think it reflects well on the Astros, and it does kind of make – other teams look bad by comparison because they didn't do that, but I don't think they all could have made right. an equivalent move to right. that one
0: right, and that's the thing It's like we're in a situation where you do have enough teams that have a viable shot at you know taking a wild card spot that there there is going to naturally be a, a limit to how many big deals like that you can you can truly uh, execute within such a short period of time, but it is cool when they happen,
1: yeah. I don't know. It's just like I, I you can't be good at all times, I don't think. It's very difficult to be good every year. The Dodgers are, are doing a pretty good job of it, but not all teams are in the Dodgers situation. So historically speaking, teams go through good times and then they go through bad times, and that's always how it's been. And I think one thing that's changed is that maybe teams are willing to be more publicly open about when they are embarking on a bad time or they are intentionally embarking on a bad time, like a, a controlled burn sort of to you right. know, so that the forest fire is, is not as bad as it would have been. They're just saying, well, we're we're going to be bad, but we think if we just kind of control the terms of of how and when we're going to be bad, then maybe we won't be as bad for as long or we'll be better on the other side of it. Admittedly, I think teams have the freedom to do that today because they're making so much money before they play a single game that they can count on being profitable or staying afloat even during those down years, even if they essentially tell fans to stay away for a while. And that can be a problem that can be non-competitive and give teams a reason not to invest when maybe they should. But I think there is something to be said for that because there were a lot of teams that made a token effort at contending every year or or didn't say things that would turn their fans off and say we're not going to win this year but they weren't going to win that year and by pretending that they were or acting as if they were And making some level of investment, but never enough to really get over the hump, then you had teams that were just in this no man's land for years and years where they were never winning 50 games, but they were also never winning 90 games. And that can be very frustrating, too. So I don't know how you do the calculus of is it better to win 73 games every year or is it better to win 60 for Three years and then win 95 For the next three years I I don't know but I think some of the offseason Stuff some of the spending Like all of this does come back to the economic structure of the game and how young players are not paid what they are worth on the field. And if that did change, then yeah, maybe we would see more activity at the deadline because teams would have less incentive to hang on to their prospects because their prospects wouldn't be worth as much. And that would be probably a good thing for baseball. And that is something that will be at the heart of the upcoming CBA negotiations, of course. But This deadline, to me, there's always a tendency to to make everything a referendum on the state of the game and baseball's dying and it's broken and we got to fix it. And this one, just to me, it it seems like a little bit of trying to fit a pre-existing narrative, I think, to, to twist this into the best example of that.
0: Yeah, I do think that there is something to sort of having a skeptical posture toward teams saying, well, we're, we're really going to win sometime, right? We're, we're committed mm-hmm. to winning in the future. I think that that is a being skeptical of that assertion is a reasonable skepticism because it can often just feel like and end up leading to kind of kicking the can down the road. And then you look yeah. around and you're like, my team hasn't been in the playoffs in a long time and there hasn't been a great product on the field. So I, I don't think that fans especially can be faulted for wanting to see results in the more immediate term and i i will say that the one part of this deadline where you just felt like i don't know i don't know if this sort of honesty we'll call it honesty is is encouraging because at least people are saying what they mean instead of sort of dissembling about what the competitive window really means but Someone might want to pull Ross Atkins aside and (laughs) say, hey, buddy, you know how you don't win hearts and minds when you have two of the most exciting prospects in the game and what you're talking about is turning 14 years of control into 42 years of control. First of all, that sounds terrible on its face. And second (laughs) of all, what does that even mean? What does that mean about the next time that the good people of Toronto and really Canada more generally Mm -hmm. are going to get to watch your team in the postseason, Ross? <laughs> Buddy, yeah, get it together. Not, not great. <laughs> yeah, not great. So I, there, this stuff does operate within an existing framework of baseball and an existing economic system, like you said. And so I understand how the the uh, impulse to tie all that stuff together is going to be a very strong one. And. They are related concepts, right? The, the situation that teams find themselves in in July is not unrelated to the situation they put themselves in in November and December. And so we can't say that those things are not totally linked, but I, I do think that there were a number of teams, as you said, This year that sort of decided, you know, we think that our odds are good enough and so we're going to try or there are teams who went out and made a splashy move. And then I think the number of teams that sort of failed to land players that met an obvious roster need didn't strike me as an unusually high number. Those teams certainly existed, but it didn't strike me as strange that like Mm -hmm. the Angels couldn't find a good starter or that the Red Sox couldn't find a bullpen piece. Although really, you guys, it's just like... (laughs) Man. You <laughs> yeah. know who they could have signed a long time ago? <laughs> They're existing closer. It's just never going to not feel like a bad choice. But anyway.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know if, if he, based on his performance thus far, would have been the solution. But then again, his performance thus far is probably affected by the fact that he sat out half the season. Yeah. So... Yeah, but there were other teams that the Braves making lots of bullpen moves. Yeah. Lots of teams made bullpen moves and the Red Sox did not. And he said Dave Nebraski was very open about we're not going to win the division. So how much should we do for this one game wildcard? Which is true like Ken said in his article like there is some logic to that like it's just not worth as much but it's still not what your fans want to hear I suppose not that fans are like oblivious to the realities right I think they understand that you have a a much lower chance of winning the World Series if your shot is at a wild card than it is a division title so But, yeah, when you have people saying that or you have Atkins talking about the 42 (sighs) years of control, like... Buddy. (laughs) the, The impulse, like, I understand why they're trying to do that sure. because they are not currently a good baseball team and right. so one way that you become good is by stockpiling young players and they are under team control longer and then they get good and you get to keep them and you supplement that core like it's really difficult to build a, a very successful team just through spending money right. and signing free agents and trading all your prospects that's pretty tough to do like generally you do have to draft well and sign international free agents and develop them well and and have this young core that's kind of always been the way you win in baseball or at least it's a really nice start so I get that he's trying to do that, but maybe don't put it in those terms. <laughs> just oh, say yeah. that we're really excited about the young, promising prospects we added to our team, and we think they're going to be really good soon, and uh, it's going to be the, the core of the next great Poojays team. Don't, yeah. don't just like refer to them the... by, by yeah. name. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, and say their y- names. <laughs> and why fans should be excited oh, about them. God. <laughs> hey, we just got six years of control in this trade, and then we... Yeah. Yeah, like, wired seven years.
0: is that what's gonna uh, go on the back of the Jersey <laughs> Ross? Like, years what is of
1: control with yeah. the number? Yeah, like, come on, man. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, and so, all of that to say, like, we we get it, we understand the, the issues at play here, and I think that you're right that there's a little bit of overfitting going on here, but not entirely. I mean, there is merit to some of these complaints, and uh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the thing about the Red Sox is like part of this is also y- you exist not only within the context of labor, you exist within the context of your current season, but you exist in the context of your immediate season. And if you're the Red Sox, you probably figure we have a little bit of a goodwill wiggle room here because right, yeah. we are literal reigning World Series champions. Yes. Although as a Mariners fan, I'm like, oh, d- you're going to turn your nose up at the wild card? <laughs> Excuse you, sir. <laughs>
1: Well, this is maybe a good way to segue into something else I wanted to talk about, which is the Chris Archer trade one year later. And Sam made a comment on some episode a couple months ago that we could probably do a whole episode on the Chris Archer trade. And we're not going to, but I did do a whole article on it. And I think it's kind of applicable here because this is a case where a team did decide, perhaps irrationally, that we are... Good or good enough to make a, a win now move and This was the Pirates of course last July 31st trading Chris Archer to Tampa Bay for Austin Meadows And Tyler Glasnow And a player to be named later Who turned out to be Shane Boz and this now Looks like a complete disaster this is (laughs) this is like the trade that everyone looks back at and thinks how did this happen this ran off the rails so quickly and a lot of articles I was reading things leading up to the deadline and everyone was writing like well the you know Cleveland would like to get a a Chris Archer package back for Bauer and (laughs) Toronto would Mm -hmm. like to get a Chris Archer package back for Stroman and I saw that like connected to at least three different players and it's like Good luck with that. Yeah. Because,
0: Wouldn't we all?
1: <laughs> yeah, this is not something that happens all the time. But I I tried to delve into what went wrong, so wrong here and, and what we can conclude, if anything, from this trade. And I think what is sort of striking about it is that it was not like a day one disaster. It was not a trade that we all immediately reacted to and right. said – the pirates are out of their minds and this is the steal of the century for Tampa Bay. There was certainly acknowledgement of the risk that the pirates were taking on and the ways that this could backfire. But I looked back at articles from the time and Jeff's post and things that other people had written about what they were thinking when this deal went down. And I think it was generally thought that this was a fair ish deal. It, It wasn't, out of nowhere it wasn't like the example that i used in this article and and an executive provided a quote about was the shelby miller trade which was (gasps) immediately like what in the world is happening here and that has turned out to be just as bad as everyone thought at the time but that was like you could see it immediately but it's very rare for that to happen these days and that's partly because of some of the things that we've been talking about, about teams evaluating players in similar ways and having similar goals. And so you don't get these massive mismatches that you got in that deal where you had Dave Stewart, who was this old school player turned agent turned GM who was – going about his business a little bit differently from most people in baseball, and, and no one who's running a baseball operations department right now is operating in that way. And so right. I think there's less potential for this kind of trade. But what is really kind of shocking was just how quickly this went from being perceived as, well, it's, it's ballsy, it's risky, but we get it, to like, oh, no, they they would want that one back. Because- yeah this happened on july 31st and like within a month i think it was pretty clear that everything that possibly could have gone wrong had because archer was not very good so like his first 3 starts were pretty lousy and glasnow's first 3 starts for tampa bay were great so glasnow was out pitching archer immediately and then Meadows was immediately tearing it up in AAA for yeah. the Rays. And then at the major league level, the Pirates went 10 and 17 that August, and the Rays went 17 and 10. And it turned out that the team that was trying to win now was actually not as good as the team that was sort of trying to win later. Like the Rays were trying to thread that needle that some teams were trying to thread this year, where They thought they were good enough to be pretty close to contention and yet they were trading Chris Archer. I don't think they knew they were a a 90 win team but I think they thought they were pretty close and yet they were dealing Archer but they were trying to get guys who were close to big league ready back but it's just worked out way better than i think they expected or or anyone expected and now a year later you look back on it and it's just like this legendarily terrible trade so i think there there are a few lessons to be learned from it but also just like wow we sometimes we don't see these things coming
0: <laughs> well and like a trade that does not have the potential seemingly and of course we could be proven wrong but seemingly does not have the potential to flip back the other way right like i think mm. about another big deal so like when the mariners traded taiwan walker and katel to the diamondbacks and got back my and gene mm. segura the initial sort of Analysis of that a couple of months into the deal was wow, the Mariners really pulled off a steal here because Cattell was not yet the Cattell Morte that we see now, and Tywin Walker was hurt. Uh, maybe he wasn't hurt yet, but he was like sort of middling, and then he's obviously been injury prone since then. And people were like, wow, and this, this Mariners team is winning a lot, and they are going to surge to the playoffs. And now Gene Segura plays for the Phillies, and Quetel Marte was an all-star, and Mitch Handiger had an injury that none of us should ever describe in detail, <laughs> ever. Yep. And so even though he had a very good season last year, his start to the season even pre-injury this year has been sort of middling. And so sometimes you get trades where it can really swing, you know, depending on the performance of those guys, and you end up when it's all said and done, being like both teams got a lot of value and they won baseball games because of this and it ends up being fine. And this one does not feel like that is going <laughs> to be true. I mean, even the for a while, like we all knew that that Shelby Millardale was bad and we thought mm-hmm. it was weird. But then for a while, like Dansby Swanson was kind of eh and mm-hmm. underperforming. And it's like, well, maybe it won't be quite as bad. And now it's like, no, it's really, really very bad. <laughs> yeah. But it took a minute after the initial round of bad, we had a period where we thought maybe this will be, you know, downgraded from disastrous to just sort of not good. And uh, that has swung the other way. But there was, you know, like you said, very quickly, it seemed like the Archer deal was like, all right, this is yeah. off the rails. This is right. quite quite bad. Quite and bad for when Pittsburgh.
1: the player to be named later was named oh in mid-August, <laughs> that swung it further because he was a pretty highly regarded prospect, too. We were
0: like, how did that I I remember it coming over on Twitter and several people simultaneously, both on Twitter and in the fangraph Slack, being like, wait, that can't be right. That that can't (laughs) be who they got, can it?
1: Right. (laughs) So Dan Simborski shared some numbers with me from his Zips projection system at the time of the trade and currently. So I think one thing is when you're making kind of a win now and the other team is making a, a win later move. You don't really expect the the future war to be equal on both sides, right. like you're you're kind of comfortable if you're the team that's trying to win now, ending up with fewer projected war because you're getting the war right now, or at least that's the idea when you really need them right and it's like Andrew Friedman actually just said this week, if you expect to win a deal from a value standpoint in July, you're not going to make deals, so you have to be. Willing to accept that like surplus value wise maybe it doesn't look so great for you because uh, there's time value there and it's good to get those wins now when you're winning so that's kind of what it looked like according to zips at the time the trade was made. Archer, who was under team control, not just for the rest of last season, but also 2019 to 21. So he was projected to accrue 9.9 war during those three years. And then Glasnow and Meadows were projected to get 17.8 war from 2019 on during their team control years. So... A little less than twice as much total war were supposed right. to be coming from Glasnow and Meadows than from Archer, which, if that's what had happened, that probably would have been an acceptable trade off sure. because the pirates were winning at that time. And if they had to give up some war in 2022 or 3 or whatever, they would have been fine with that. Sure. But now. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, it's
0: really bad.
1: The same projection system has <laughs> downgraded Archer to 3.7 war in that three-year period, and upgraded Glassnow and Meadows to 30.1 war. So, in the past, it looked like those two prospects would be worth about twice as much as Archer in total. Now it's like ten, 10 times as much. <laughs> like, so almost, bad. it's such a big gap and. <sighs> I guess it could change in theory. Like, Glasnow hasn't pitched since May. He's got sure. an elbow thing. He's supposedly okay, but he still might not come back this season. And Meadows has cooled off a little because he's started the season as, like, the hottest hitter in the league. And since then, he's he's been okay. So, you know, maybe it, it won't look quite as bad as it did in May, let's say. But I think it, it looks very bad, and it's hard to imagine it going the other way because the Pirates were supposed to— win now and instead the Rays won now and also figure to win later so there's just no positive outcome there and really you could say that the Pirates were an example of a team that was too aggressive and that didn't take a coldly analytical look at where they were in the standings and their actual outlook because at the time they made the trade, they were three and a half games away from the wild card. They had a 13% chance of making the playoffs, and they were 55 and 52. And they admitted, GM Neil Huntington, President Frank Coonley, they said that their recent play had changed their plans, that they – were going to be sellers or non-buyers, but then they had a hot streak, and they went 15-4 and in the 19 games leading up to the deadline. They had like a, a Giants-esque hot streak right before the deadline, and they kind of bought into it, not just to make a a 2018-only move. Archer was under team control for a while, right. but they wouldn't have made that move, I think, by their own admission if not for that hot streak putting them in a position where it looked like, hey, maybe we could win this thing but if you had taken like the the 30,000 foot view of how good that team actually was and what their outlook was they really didn't have much of a chance of making good in that season and so you could say that it hurts their team and it hurts their fans and yeah. i think pirates fans were pretty excited at the time that was like a cool kind of move it was like hey the pirates they're finally going all in and it was kind of confusing that they did because yeah. they had traded Cole and McCutcheon that January and it's like pick a lane what, what are yes. you guys doing here and also like at previous deadlines they they hadn't really invested and and they're just kind of notorious for not spending on their team in general but it was like this one time at least they did and it was like okay you know you guys you you're going for it and that was sort of something to be celebrated except that would Pirates fans rather have Glasnow and Meadows for the next few years now than the rest of Archer's contracts? Yeah, of course they would, and, and maybe that would make them more likely to win in coming years. So I don't know. There are times where you can get swayed by a hot streak and think, all right, let's roll the dice here, and then it comes back to bite you.
0: I think that maybe the takeaway from this, and we like we, we know that there's often a Premium placed on players who are acquired at the deadline because mm-hmm. teams really want to acquire them and there's a limited market And I think that maybe the takeaway is that like people should just uh, like you said They should pick their lane and then they should commit to their lane They should mm-hmm. commit to the lane they're in because if the pirates had decided to spend money, which I know will never happen <laughs> <laughs> But if they had decided to spend money in that offseason they could could have been in a very different deadline position because maybe their decision-making isn't based on the fact that they are – you know on a hot streak but that they are leading their division or perhaps they aren't doing those things but they have already acquired players be- through signing or trade in the offseason is- and then they say look you know we know that we're not set up to win right now despite our best plans but we're going to we're we're not going to panic we like this course we're going to stay this course we're not going to sell off prospects who are going to be valuable to us next year. We're gonna keep those guys and have them be good next year. And of course, like, it's always difficult to assess these things because who's to say what would have happened to the prospects in question if they had stayed yeah. with the Pirates, right? We have seen several instances, Garrett Cole being a good one, of of players who have improved, pitchers who have improved once they have left the Pirates' mm-hmm. uh, system. So who knows what happens to Glass now? But all of that to say, there's a ton of uncertainty always whenever there. If if you hear a loud uh, plane going overhead, I apologize. The Blue Angels are practicing, and they're yeah, cool. uh, it is cool. Except that you feel like your house is going to explode. So we will not do a long digression on my take on the Blue Angels, which has changed since I have been a tiny child. But anyhow, I apologize if there's background noise. So anyway, we we don't know what's going to happen with any of the players, prospects or not that are moved at the deadline. But I do think that. Teams don't tend to make the best decisions when they are trying to adapt a plan on the fly. And it's also often unclear if it's really the front office that's trying to adapt that plan or if it's ownership mm. that's trying to adapt that plan. And so all of that to say, including with my Blue Angels digression, that teams should just commit to winning in December mm. and, then yeah. it, and then it'll and then it be fine. Or it won't be, but at least you're like, hey, we try real hard.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could make the case in retrospect that maybe Archer was not the guy to make that move for. Like, he was in his third straight season of having an ERA over four at the time that the Pirates traded for him, and he had had better fips in each of those years, and he had been very good in previous years, but it had been a while since he had been, like, actually really good at preventing runs, which is, of course, what pitchers are trying to do. So, you could say that maybe. There was a, a little bit of an overvaluation of Archer. I don't know. But I think also the point that you made there, that's something I wrote about too, because when trades are made, it's not like you're just shuffling pieces and right. this person's projected for this many future war and you're trading this many future war for that many future war. Sometimes the future war changes because of the change in teams yeah. and sometimes it can change very dramatically dramatically. I don't think this was a case where the Rays necessarily fixed Glasnow no. or, or Meadows. Like, I think they had already been working on some things with the Pirates, and I think maybe the change of scenery helped a little bit, and Glasnow got to go from the bullpen right into the rotation, and that was probably a confidence boost. And sometimes just going somewhere new and new coaches and new voices, and it's just a shock to the system, and it can be good to get that fresh start. This wasn't like a a— Astros and Ryan Presley Kind of case I don't think it wasn't quite that Dramatic but I think It is still the case that Somewhat recently the Pirates were the team That had the reputation for players or at least pitchers going there and getting better and if anything it is the opposite now that has swung quite quickly and I think that does apply to Archer because he was quoted last month being quite frank about how he's had a difficult time fitting into the Pirates pitching plan which is sort of this one size fits all philosophy maybe it's gotten a little less rigid but He said he felt some pressure to conform to their model for pitching, which continues to be throw lots of sinkers and throw inside and get grounders. And that doesn't suit some pitchers so well. And particularly like Archer, he had thrown a sinker in the past, but he had a good slider and he went to Pittsburgh and he's throwing more sinkers and fewer sliders and pitching to contact. And he's just not really that guy, I don't think so. It reflects quite poorly on them when pitchers are just not free to do whatever it is that makes them the best pitchers they can be. And whether it's Morton and Cole going from Pittsburgh to Houston and just being way better, or Archer going there and not being himself, or just the lack of breakouts that Ray Searidge had developed a reputation for in the first half of the decade. And I know the Pirates also lost pitching coordinator Jim Benedict to the Marlins. I think he's with the Cubs now, so maybe that played a part in it too. But it's just sort of striking how a coach can develop a reputation as a pitcher whisperer and he's a miracle worker and he has pulled all these pitchers off the scrap heap and made them great and then either he falls in love with that system and tells everyone to do it and it doesn't make sense for everyone or this particular group of players doesn't listen to him and implement it quite as well or conditions in the game change where it's not so advantageous to throw sinkers anymore and teams are realizing that sliders are just better pitches generally unless you've got a really incredible sinker and so the game has changed around the pirates now where the competitive advantage that they had found now seems to be a competitive disadvantage, and they just keep banging their heads against this wall, and it's like you can see it coming. It it shouldn't be this easy to see it coming. Like when right. Garrett Cole was traded, everyone was writing like, oh, he's going to be better now because he's just going to throw better pitches more often. It seems like a very obvious thing, but the Pirates just didn't tell him that, so it is odd how that can very quickly swing from one extreme to the other,
0: yeah, and you know teams are some teams are conscious of that sometimes to their own detriment. I think that the quote, "I will remember this trade deadline will remain the the Mets being concerned that if they traded players to <laughs> other places, they'd get better, yeah, so they wouldn't get the return they deserved. That still is just the wild, that is the wildest quote. That is, (laughs) that is as wild for different reasons, but as wild a quote as, as Atkins' quote. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah that's a wild
0: quote that is a great yeah. that is a that is a wild thing to admit in public but anyhow, at least, so
1: at least it was a report it wasn't yeah
0: I guess it wasn't, it wasn't a direct saying it the right, way that it was, Atkins said that's it that's true but still
1: <laughs> still yeah
0: Oof. so yeah I mean there is something that we should acknowledge about like deadline analysis I mean this what you've done here is different right because we've had a whole year's worth of performance and we can look back and be like this is objectively bad but there is something mm-hmm. very silly about the fact that we write about these trades right now at all. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) It is fundamentally, it is guessing. It is often quite a very informed guessing, right? And we are often right, but we are also very often wrong. And so, you know, if we had our druthers, we wouldn't write about trades until six months later, and we wouldn't write about drafts until five years later, but we (laughs) can't do that. So we just do the very best we can. And we often say smart things uh, for good reasons. And sometimes we say smart things for bad reasons and sometimes we (laughs) sound very silly, but it is a fundamentally strange thing that we are engaged in and I don't envy teams the exercise of trying to figure out exactly what they can justify to ownership, their fan base, how they can reconcile that internally to players, how they are able to get what they need from teams that are also trying to do all of those things in sequence with very similar sets of tools and very similar player valuations, which is another reason as you noted that this archer trade is sort of silly because You know, presumably you would be able to assess these guys equally, but um, Mm -hmm. so it's a very hard thing, and I am sympathetic to it. But sometimes it goes wildly wrong, and sometimes you get uh, Zach Greinke. So that sounds that sounds good.
1: (laughs) While we're on the subject of the pirates, is there anything that we should say about the suspensions (laughs) that were announced on Thursday for the Tuesday Reds Pirates brawl?
0: People should stop fighting. (laughs) This was a fight (laughs) that I think was. I mean. There was the one very, very good photo that emerged from this I know, fight. I'm
1: conflicted because I'm very much over the brawls, but the photography this season has been exquisite. It because has the, been
0: very, uh, very good. The Yasir um,
1: Puig taking on an entire team photo yes. from earlier this year, and then the Amir Garrett taking on an entire team yes. <laughs> photo from this time. It's a fun, very highly memeable genre of picture.
0: But people should should not fight. It's very silly. It is a bad way of conflict resolution. It breeds further conflict as evidenced by these Reds and Pirates players who just seem to want to knife one another. Uh, in a way that is very aggressive. Uh, I think that the suspensions were warranted. It was what uh, I saw somewhere on Twitter it was 40 games worth of suspensions. Um, I think it is interesting that was it hurdle or was it the someone on the Reds who was penalized, not only for the role in this fight, but for how many prior ejections he had <laughs> yeah. had?
1: I thought that was funny. Yeah. Am it I was remembering that? Hurdle was suspended for two games and David Bell was suspended yes. for six games yes. for coming back on the field following his ejection, escalating the incident with his aggressive actions, his club's intentional pitch at Marte, and, and his numerous ejections yes, thank this season. You. I could have suspending you for <laughs> getting ejected a lot. Yeah.
0: It's like, hey man, we get it. You gotta <laughs> cool it. You gotta yeah. cool it now. We yeah. we're not gonna take this anymore. I think it's good. You have to there need to be sufficient consequences to short circuit whatever that immediate anger impulse is in people, which I understand is a hard thing to short circuit. We all have moments where we are blustery or too angry, and then we feel badly about it later, and you need, to, you need to make the problems of future you the problems of present you. And so I think that the discipline needs to be pretty strict. I still think it is amazing, one, that Puig was allowed to stay in that game as long as he was... That Mm -hmm. remains a truly strange thing because he had been traded and he just kept playing (laughs) baseball. (laughs) And I wanted very much for him to know he had been traded and to decide to fight anyway. It does not appear that that was... (laughs) necessarily the case right i think we think that he did not know that he was uh now an employee or soon to be an employee of the cleveland indians but was still Mm -hmm. uh an employee of the cincinnati reds so the context makes it all the more interesting but people shouldn't fight we're not delighting in it we're saying don't fight we Mm -hmm. are saying props to the photographer who managed to, (laughs) to get that very compelling shot but don't fight fighting is bad
1: yeah I like managers getting suspended for their roles in the fight because I agree. They've, they've probably either implicitly or explicitly contributed to the tensions. Oh, yeah. If they're, I mean, a hurdle, the pirates are always throwing inside. So maybe that leads to more tensions and they're doing that supposedly for an advantage. And they think that if you throw inside that it helps you in the rest of that at bat. Eno you know, Sarah's just wrote an article about that, but He was suspended for the club's multiple intentional pitches thrown at Dietrich this season. So MLB is basically saying, hey, we know that you're telling these guys to throw at them or you're not stepping in at the very least. And you should be because you're the adult in the room. So I like that. And Keone Kella was suspended for 10 games for throwing in the head region of Dietrich, which is not a lot in the grand scheme of things, but by baseball suspension for beanball standards, 10 games is pretty hefty. So that's something. And Amir Garrett got eight games for (laughs) single-handedly attacking the Pirates, which in a (laughs) sense brought its own punishment upon him, but this is additional punishment for that.
0: I just, yeah, I'm not laughing because I'm delighted that he did it. (laughs) I just, you know, it was it was an evening that had seen trade activity. So I did not immediately, I did not watch this fight live. I did not have yeah. this game on. Clearly, these teams have been sort of joshing at each other and, like, and engaged in some wrestling um, f- throughout the season. So when I heard that there had been a fight, the only angle that I was interested in was the Puig part. And I, I did not have the game on. And I thought, oh, I'm going to turn this on. It's going to be fairly standard, you know, a guy's going to throw inside and the other guy's going to squawk and then the benches are going to clear and the, the bullpen will run out to do nothing. And mm-hmm. so the managers will stand there hugging each other while they fight, air quotes, and it'll be your standard fare. And then I turned it on and I was like, this is this <laughs> is aggressive in a way that is quite unusual, even yes. within the realm of baseball fights. He was just ready to fight the entire team by himself (laughs) and I will say it was disconcerting you know a lot of the time when when bench is clear they aren't really there's just a lot of like standing around and no one's really trying to inflict damage and it's you know it's a chest thumping kind of a thing occasionally it does escalate in a way that seems quite bad like you know, uh, you know when uh, when Harper and Strickland went at each other, that was bad. When the Tigers and the Yankees brawled seventeen thousand times in one game a year or two ago, and uh, and Gary Sanchez just like kidney punched Miguel Cabrera, that was bad. <laughs> but often it's just it's just a bunch of testosterone fueled silliness. But Amir Garrett wanted to hurt someone like he yes. he pulled back and was ready to wallop another person. So it was I thought I was going to watch one thing and then I turned it on and quickly realized that I was watching a very different genre of film. <laughs>
1: right. And
0: I didn't like it. Yeah. But yeah. it yeah. was dramatic at, at it was. least. So
1: last thing I think, it's a new month, which means that Sam wrote another article about the Hall of Famers. Mike Trout passed last month, and July was a busy month for Mike Trout passing the Hall of Famers. He passed eight of them, and he had a good month, and he leapfrogged Ed Dalahanty, Gary Carter, Bobby Wallace, Frankie Frisch, Barry Larkin, Ron Santo, Alan Trammell, and the underrated Johnny Mize. And as always, the best part of these pieces is reading Sam's little recaps of each Hall of Famer's career and why we should appreciate them and yet why we should not appreciate them quite as much as Mike Trout (laughs) and Every time it's like, well, this guy's best season was as good as Mike Trout's like sixth best season. And Sam actually has a, a line in here that Mike Trout's average season is as good as the typical Hall of Famer's best season, oh which... God. I, I, he, I don't know that he actually like crunched the numbers on that or whether he's just sort of saying that based on eyeballing this stuff, but that sounds about right, and that is kind of amazing to think about. But I think my favorite part of this piece was in the Bobby Wallace section, and as Sam notes, Bobby Wallace, probably one of the least known Hall of Famers, Good player, but played a very long time ago, 1890s to, I think, 1918. He played for a long time, but he was a glove guy. He hit okay, but he was best known for his glove and seems to have been a very deserving Hall of Famer, but was not very well remembered. And there's a a quote in here about one of his great contributions to the game, and this is Wallace himself quoted in his Sabre bio. He says, As more speed afoot was constantly demanded for big league ball, he's a shortstop by the way, I noticed the many infield bounders which the runner beat to first only by the thinnest fractions of a second. I also noted that the old-time three-phase movement, fielding a ball, coming erect for a toss, and throwing to first, wouldn't do uncertain hits with fast men. It was plain that the stop and toss had to be combined into a continuous movement. So... Bobby Wallace just, like, invented throwing. Yeah. He just he invented, (laughs) as Sam says, he is generally credited with inventing the now standard continuous motion of fielding and throwing, which I had not thought of as something that had to be invented, Yeah, which I really like this anecdote. Because when Sam and I were talking the other day about getting a head start on 3-2, he was saying how, that's probably something that someone had to think of At some point, like, hey, I can run There's no downside here I can just uh, get a head start, full count Might as well, and he was saying It probably took decades for someone to think Of that, and there was probably a backlash when they Started doing it, and right. I hadn't considered that And I really hadn't considered this And this is like, Bobby Wallace Came up in 1894 So baseball had been played For, you know, like 50-ish Years at that point, it wasn't like a Brand new sport, and And Major League Baseball had been played for like 25 years almost. So it took a while to invent like fielding and throwing without just standing up and taking your time and and really making those two separate movements, which is kind of incredible because I really like thinking about things that like we take for granted that had to be invented. Like when I look back at medieval art, for instance. And it, people say like, well, why were they so bad at, at drawing in, in the Middle Ages? And and that's probably not true. I'm not an art expert, but I know they, they placed more of an emphasis on, on symbolism back then than realism. And so they weren't always trying to accurately represent figures let's say and and they you know had inferior materials to work with and that was probably part of it but also part of it was that like they just hadn't really discovered perspective yet and <laughs> they hadn't done anatomy so they didn't right. really know what like Swirl. bodies were supposed yeah, to look spiral. like it's their like...
0: hands are weird <laughs> right. in medieval art they look very wispy
1: yeah and like their and...
0: heads are the wrong size you're like what human has ever looked like
1: this <laughs> right and like i can't draw but like I feel like I grew up around a lot of people who were just almost instinctively really good at drawing. Maybe they worked harder at it than I realized, but like I think of that almost as just like a, a natural knack that you have to be able to look at something and then represent it on the page. But like it took humans like many millennia to figure out like oh you know farther away objects should be smaller than than the closer ones and that's how you can tell that they're farther away and like the idea of foreshortening and all these things that the renaissance artists came up with and that to me is is kind of wild that like we had to think of that and have this system so that we could make drawings look like things in real life. And that's kind of what this is to me. like if People had to figure out how to throw the ball over to first base pretty quickly, which just seems like it should be a pretty instinctive thing.
0: It does seem like it should be an instinctive thing, but it just... <laughs> well, the thing is, nothing had forced it to be instinctive until yeah. they got faster
1: yeah and and, yeah. and wouldn't
0: you rather you would rather instead of throwing on the run that's that's risky, that can go awry. We see that mm-hmm. go awry all the time. you'd rather come set and and throw, no? and you just didn't have a reason to not do that more optimal thing because uh because it didn't matter. Because you didn't have to, and then people got faster, and you're like, "Oh no, this isn't gonna work. (laughs) Gotta gotta figure out a new thing."
1: Yeah, which is also when people say that the 90 foot base paths are like divinely inspired and it's the most perfect thing ever. A, it was I think the process of some trial and error. You figured out how long the the base path should be because that's how long it took people to get to those places. But also there was like a give and take there where the runners started running faster and then the fielders had to actually throw in a continuous motion. And so it it isn't as if that 90 foot distance was perfect forever. It was like one side got better at covering that distance and then the other side got better at getting the ball over there faster. And that whole process has continued. I, I guess it's still impressive that even though sides have innovated and guys have gotten faster and fielders have adjusted and everything that we're still using the same length base pass that bobby wallace was and whether it has forced these adjustments or not it still works so that that is kind of cool but it's not just like this divinely inspired thing where we, we discovered on a stone tablet that it should be 90 feet it, it right kind of there's a reason why it's it's 90 feet but this was wonderful
0: well and I like very like uh it's just I don't think we ever talk enough and it gets it would get it would get boring and so I get why we don't do it and we would sound sort of twee and sentimental and so I understand that too but like I don't think we talk enough about how hard how hard it is to be a baseball player how hard baseball is the, the mm-hmm. and then to be able to adapt the already hard thing to do an even harder thing and mm-hmm. to do that like within the course of one's career and mm-hmm. to be able to not only make that adjustment, figure out what adjustment it is that you need to make to have the confidence to do. It. Can you imagine the first time he tried this in a game? People were probably like, Sir, what yeah. are you up to here? What right. Bobby, what what is this bit of business that you're engaged in? And he was just like, No, like the guy's faster now. I gotta figure it out. Yeah. Right? He and he did it. It's great. <laughs> Yeah. These guys are amazing. So I'm going to take back every single thing I said about the trade deadline because the fact that we don't talk about this stuff and Mike Trout every day and instead have to spend time on the other stuff is an indication that the other stuff has failed because mm-hmm. we should talk about this all the time because it's yeah. amazing. Mike Trout's amazing, <laughs> and the guys he p- he passed are amazing. We should talk about them every day. I also love very much that Bobby Wallace decided – to be an umpire and then was like I don't want to do that and he went back to playing
1: <laughs> yeah oh. right and the position of shortstop itself was not always a yeah. position that was something someone had to come up with too there was just like a a roving person in the field and he could kind of play anywhere and I think it was Doc Adams on the Knickerbockers who figured out this seems to be the best place to stand like it seems uh. like a lot of balls are hit over here so yeah. What and then everyone here, was like, though? yeah, and everyone was like, hey, Doc Adams, you're onto something, but that, that is a good place to stand. <laughs> and that's how we end up with these things. So it wasn't like the, the founders perceived that this was the perfect place to put this person. It was like they figured it out.
0: And it's just, it's just the best because at any point along the way, they could have not done any of these things and the game would be worse for it and it would be less entertaining. And who knows if you and I would even have the jobs we have as a result of that. And there are people in both of our lives who we know because of this. Yeah. We, there are people in our lives who we know because Bobby Wallace was like, I'm gonna like, be an athlete, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing to think about. This is—it's just—it's all a—it's all a crazy miracle because it doesn't have to be like this at all. As you said, it is not given to us on stone tablets; it is all made up, and mm-hmm. we managed to make up this great thing. What yeah. I mean.
1: <laughs> and along those lines, some people have been tweeting us about the play that Jeff McNeil made yeah. in right field in the Mets game, where what he was in Chicago, right? And Chicago, they were the first team to extend the yes, netting I all the way to so. the, the foul poles, and so. There was a play, a ball that was hit very close to the netting down the line. And Jeff McNeil just cannonballed into the netting and he caught this ball because he accounted for the net, I guess, and he realized that he wasn't going to go head first into the stands, that he could just kind of care him off of this net. And so he planned for that. And that is now going to be a, a defensive technique. Like, probably that, that'll that be something players practice. And maybe, I mean, this would have happened. Someone else would have done it inevitably. But it's like the Jeff McNeil play now. He's like the, the first guy to do this. And as other teams do this netting and extend the netting in every ballpark. And I'm sure this sort of play has happened in Japan and Korea and other places where they've had the netting extended for a while now. But... But that's the the thing, like the rule changes, something changes and players adjust so that you could say, well, I'm not gonna catch this thing because I I can't go all out because there's a net there now. But alternatively, you could just say, yeah, I can just run as fast as I want and I'm not gonna get hurt because I'll just land softly in this net and I'll bounce off it and I can make this cool catch.
0: It's really, it's just the best thing (laughs) And I feel very tired and Uh I will, you know, I'm sure that people are listening to this episode and they're like there have been certain points at which Meg has not made as much sense as she typically does (laughs) and it is because my brain is pudding (laughs) and so I apologize for that but like it's just the best, it's so good and it's such a good reason to be tired Uh and uh, it just, it keeps giving us ways to be better and I, uh, yeah. It's right. just the best thing. Can I share my Granky quote before we Oh, end? yeah.
1: I was going to say we should end on that happy note, but no note could be happier than this. So no yes. <laughs> note could be
0: happier than this, but now I have to find it again because I sent I sent it to you in G Chat. I'm mm-hmm. going to... Oh, okay. I found it. So I have shared previously my delight in Granky quotes. In par- I think I-, I was talking about this with a friend and I was trying to explain why I found it funny. And my friend asked... Do you think that he was joking? And I was like, I don't know, and that's why right. it's great because yeah. I don't know, and I don't ever want to know. I don't want to <laughs> know more than I do now. So this is from this is from a couple of years ago uh, after the Granky trade happened. Somebody tweeted this at me. <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> I do not know if I don't know what piece this is from. I imagine that Andrew Joseph, who who tweeted this, must have written it. But if he did not write this piece, then I apologize. Manager Don Mattingly had called a serious team meeting, but Granky, who never speaks out, stood up and got the room's attention. He said, some of you guys have been doing the number two and not washing your hands. It's not good. I've noticed it even happening earlier today. So if you guys could just be better about it, that would be great. And then he (laughs) sat back down.
1: (laughs) It's so good.
0: I love several things about this, but my favorite thing is that he did not call this meeting which would have also been great as mm-hmm. an aside. He hijacked his manager's meeting to implore <laughs> his teammates to wash their hands after going yeah. to the bathroom.
1: Yeah, and, and then, the fact that he called it doing the number two.
0: Doing the number two. <laughs> one uh. does not know if he objected similarly to people who did not wash their hands after doing the number one, but the number two, that was a bridge too far for Granky. and he yeah. had to say his piece, and he did. mm <laughs>
1: I noticed it even happening earlier today. Yeah. <laughs> has he been like following players He's around? Been to, them. Yeah. Has he just happened to notice this because right. he was in the bathroom at the same time? Or is he like camping out there to catch players in the act? I-
0: yeah. There's a lot of things about this <laughs> that we will never know but wondering about them will bring me joy for the rest of the day.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and everyone laughed once they realized that he was evidently serious, which is nice because this is the kind of thing that like you could imagine like no one likes the like workplace busybody who's no. like policing other people's behavior at the office or something, but when Granky does it, it's great because he's Granky and he's one of a kind. And I, I think everyone just appreciates his perspective on things.
0: Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. <Yeah. laughs> Houston Astro, Zach Granky, that's gonna take a little it will take a little adjusting. When will yeah. he start? He just started yesterday. We're recording yes. this on Thursday. So I guess that probably what that puts him on track for Monday.
1: Yeah, depending on depending off on days. off days. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. yeah, that'll be fun. Woo. This anecdote was in an Andrew Joseph article, but it was evidently originally in Molly Knight's book. Ah, so good job, Molly, getting that anecdote. Yeah,
0: that is a great anecdote. <laughs> Goodness, yeah.
1: I do hope that someone will write the Zach Grenkey book, or or that he will write the Zach Grinky autobiography someday. I don't know. Maybe it's best consumed through anecdotes like this, but. I <laughs> I want more. So I want
0: more, but I feel like it would just take it would take the very it would take a very particular person. I don't know who that person is. It would just take that writer to player matchup would need to be just right. Because yeah. I could also see him being not forthcoming if he did mm-hmm. not feel that the the arrangement was right. So I hope he finds that just right.
1: Right. Or just uh, a book that's a collection of other players talking about yeah. Granky and telling their Granky stories. That might be even better.
0: Yeah. I have a, I have a book of, of Ishiro quotes that mm. I got at the Seattle Public Library big book sale.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And it is delightful. So maybe we <laughs> just need one of those.
1: Yeah. yeah. That'd be great too. Maybe yeah. with like a little commentary by Granky oh at the gosh. end of every... Story where he explains what he was thinking. So what I
0: was thinking was that, you know, it's pretty (laughs) gross when people don't wash their hands and it would be nice if they wash their hands. So (laughs) thought I'd mention it.
1: All right. Get some rest and thank uh, you. We will talk again next week. Sounds good. One more thing I meant to mention, Rob Arthur wrote a piece for Baseball Prospectus last month about how ejections are up significantly this season. We've just seen more players and particularly managers tossed, I think, right up there with 2015 when there were more ejections because of the tensions about pace of play rules being enforced. We haven't seen that sort of rule change this season, so it's kind of curious that ejections are way up. Rob, in his article, speculated that it could be because of growing unrest about umpires making mistakes behind the plate now that robots umps are getting discussed more seriously and implemented in the atlantic league players and managers may just be less tolerant of human error by umpires but all of these brawls fit into that trend so i will link to rob's piece as well as many of the other articles that we discussed today that will do it for today and for this week. Thank you for listening. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash wild. The following five listeners have already signed up to pledge some small monthly amount, help keep the podcast going, get themselves access to some perks. Ryan Giles, Eric Edston, Timothy M. Stackhouse, Andy Kleinberg, and Ben Gosby. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on itunes and other podcast platforms helps us out when you do leave us positive ratings and reviews you can contact us via email at podcast at or via the patreon messaging system if you're a supporter thanks to dylan higgins for his editing assistance you can also go pick up my book the mvp machine how baseball's new nonconformists are using data to build better players it is the story of the player development revolution driving today's game and if you like it please leave us a positive review for that too on amazon and goodreads it does help us out we hope you have a wonderful weekend and we will be back to talk to you early next
0: week. He came bursting out of nowhere. Like a. the but...